This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. So last week, I uh, took some time off, so hopefully you enjoyed all of the pre-recorded videos, but uh, I'm back now, and I've been chomping at the bit to talk about this particular story. I'm not going to get into all of the details because I'm sure that you have learned about this already, but Ron DeSantis has done a PR stunt that's just really disgusting, and he did this as an attempt to hypocrisy burn Democrats, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this is to explore a different element to just kind of put into perspective historically how bad what he did really is. So there were these organizations known as the White People's Councils. They existed all throughout the South and the United States during the segregation era, and they would oftentimes align with members of the Ku Klux Klan to bus Black American citizens to other cities. And the same thing that they said was the same thing that Ron DeSantis is saying now. So they'd say, well, you know, this particular governor, he seems more open and accepting of black people. Therefore, if we ship them to his city, I'm sure that he won't view them as a nuisance as the way that we do. And I'm sure that he'd be happy to house them. So that's what they would say. And we'll get into the specifics here, but take, it the, uh, take a look at the way that Ron DeSantis described these migrants and what his intent was to do. We are not a sanctuary state, and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction and yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Biden would fly people in the middle of the night, dump them all across this country. There was no warning on any of this. And all those people in DC and New York were beating their chests when Trump was president, saying they were so proud to be sanctuary jurisdictions, saying how bad it was to have a secure border. The minute even a small fraction of what those border towns deal with every day is brought to their front door, they all of a sudden go berserk and they're so upset that this is happening. And it just shows you, you know, their virtue signaling is a fraud, okay? So notice the cruelty when he announced that he'd be trafficking these human beings across state lines. People behind him laughed. I mean, particularly the two white ladies who were behind him, they laughed as if it was a joke to transport human beings across state lines to prove a political point, potentially doing so illegally while um, getting them to agree to go with you under false pretenses. I mean, the whole situation is incredibly grotesque, but as you saw, he made a prediction at the end there. And he said that, you know, well, we'll see if they're as accepting as, you know, in these uh, in these uh, sanctuary cities as they say they are, right? Because they huff and puff, but I would argue that this is virtue signaling. Now, again, this is the same thing that white people's councils said back in the 1960s. And we'll get to that because the, 
parallels here between now and then are just stunningly striking. Now, I'll just say that I've had my criticisms of the Democratic Party and their treatment of immigrants, but on an individual level, he predicted that the people at Martha's Vineyard would be as cruel as he and Republicans are towards these immigrants, but that wasn't actually the case. As Laboy tweeted, Republicans shipped migrants to Martha's Vineyard because they want to cast liberals as out-of-touch hypocrites whose politics are purely aesthetic, but they got owned because even those country club assholes have a baseline of human decency well above the median Republican. And that is exactly correct. Most people see these immigrants and they view them as other human beings. But Republicans here, by doing this PR stunt, they're essentially tacitly admitting that, well, we don't view them as human beings. And if we do, they're certainly inferior to us as human beings. Therefore, other people will definitely be as cruel to them as we are. But that didn't bear out. Now, let's get to the historical example of Alan Gilmore and what was done to him and his family. So, Alan Gilmore and his wife with eight children, they were shipped across state lines under false pretenses, much like these immigrants reportedly were as well. And we're not going to read this, but this is an actual clip of the news article from the 60s of this. So, you can pause the video and read this if you want to, but let's get into the actual details presented in an op-ed for Common Dreams by Tom Hartman. He writes, in the fall of 1962, Deputy U.S. Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach supervised a group of U.S. Marshals providing protection to James Meredith as he became the first black person to ever enroll in the University of Mississippi. Five months after Meredith enrolled at UM in the last week of February of 1963, Charles Bennett, president of the White Citizens Council of Shreveport, Louisiana, approached a black father of eight children, Alan Gilmore, telling him he knew of an employment opportunity in Trenton, New Jersey, and would help him get there. Gilmore had previously driven a cab and worked in a grocery store and bakery, but had lost his job during the slight economic downturn of 1963. Bennett provided Gilmore with bus tickets for himself, his wife, and their eight children, as well as $75 in spending money and a dozen cans of sardines to snack upon during their two-day journey to Trenton. He also gave Gilmore the address of what he thought was the home of Nicholas Katzenbach, telling him that Katzenbach was the employer in need of and awaiting Gilmore's services. As soon as the Gilmore family was on the bus, the White Citizens Council called a press conference and President Bennett announced that the next day the Gilmore family would show up at Katzenbach's home. It was essentially a PR stunt. And that's just one example, to be clear. White people's councils, they, with their allies in the Ku Klux Klan, they did this to multiple black families, sending them to Katzenbach's residence saying, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you'll be as accepting of them as you claim to be, right? So the same thing that happened to these black families in the 60s by the White People's Council is the same exact thing that happened with Ron DeSantis and these immigrants. And it's not just immoral and unethical, but it might actually be illegal as well, although that's yet to be seen. But thankfully, Dylan Fernandez, a lawmaker in Massachusetts, is calling for a criminal probe, saying not only is it morally criminal, there are legal implications around fraud, kidnapping, deprivation of liberty, and human trafficking. And there may actually be a case, according to legal experts, if DeSantis did indeed traffic these immigrants across state lines under false pretenses. And the assumption is that, oh, well, they broke the law, so this is their own fault, right? Why are they here in this country? But many of them had already applied for refugee status. So they're trying to actually move here legally. And they're just treating them like criminals and most importantly, treating them as if they're not actually fully developed human beings that, you know, feel the same ambitions, pain, suffering, happiness, 
and have the same you know uh, goals for life as as we do and it's just genuinely disgusting so as we talk about this story in particular i want people to remember the historical parallels to what happened in the 1960s and what ron DeSantis is doing right now and i get that this story is old news but history oftentimes repeats itself and there's a lot more context to get to so i'll link you to the full story written by tom hartman down below but just so you know overall this is not a new phenomenon. It is a cruel tactic that has been used in the past by racists to dehumanize people who they view as inferior to them. And this is where we're at still in 2022. You think that things like this are a relic of ancient history that we all collectively look back upon and cringe at. But no, in 2022, Republican governors are doing this and people are standing behind them laughing at the cruelty rather than wincing at it, thinking, maybe this isn't the best look, maybe we look bad. But perhaps this is backfiring because when you just, when you cross that line, there are some people who, even if they don't necessarily think that immigration should be a thing that happens, maybe they'll say, oh, well, I support legal immigration, even if in practice they don't. But even for them to see the cruelty like this, it might be too much for them. So there's a potential that this backfires, and I hope that it does. And most importantly, I hope that Ron DeSantis is held legally accountable because human trafficking to make a political point, a racist political point, is pretty gross. And even for 2022 America, we shouldn't tolerate things like this. Yeah, and by the way, just for the record, this was voluntary. All migrants were put up in hotels, given accommodations. They were fed, they were showered, they were offered haircuts and, and any other services that they were needed, correct? Yeah, not only that, they all signed consent forms to go. And then the vendor that, that is doing this for Florida provided them with a packet that had a map of Martha's Vineyard. It had the numbers for different services on Martha's Vineyard. And then it had numbers for the overall agencies in Massachusetts that handle things involving immigration and refugees. So it was clearly voluntary and all the other nonsense you're hearing um, is just not true. You just watched Florida Governor Ron DeSantis attempt to shield himself from legal accountability while on Fox News, following news that a sheriff in Texas will be investigating the migrant PR stunt that he just did last week. Now, we'll come back to what I think he means by saying this quote-unquote nonsense that others are accusing him of, but ultimately, this was a propaganda attempt by Sean Hannity to let Ron DeSantis try to escape culpability, but unfortunately for him, not only is that already too late, but it's getting worse as he's in more hot water. As Mediaite explains, migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard last week by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have filed a class action lawsuit against him, alleging they were victims of a conspiracy to falsely imprison them. The civil lawsuit was filed in the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts Tuesday, just six days after 48 migrants were flown to the island on behalf of DeSantis. The governor is listed as a defendant in the 35-page court filing, as is the Florida Department of Transportation and its leader, Jared Perdue. The suit cites four plaintiffs as well as others similarly situated and complains the flights from Texas to Martha's Vineyard violated multiple constitutional amendments and were part of a conspiracy. Quote, these migrants who are pursuing the proper channels for lawful immigration status in the United States experienced cruelty akin to what they fled in their home country, the suit states. Defendants manipulated them 
strip them of their dignity, deprive them of their liberty, bodily autonomy, due process, and equal protection under the law, and impermissibly interfered with the federal government's exclusive control over immigration in furtherance of an unlawful goal and a personal political agenda. So all of the things that they're accusing him of, I hope they win. I hope that they are as successful as they can possibly be with this lawsuit. A lot of people don't even realize this, but immigrants have constitutional protections. This was determined by the Supreme Court. So you can't just, just treat them as if they're trash to be, you know, humiliated for your political PR stunt. You can't do that. So I hope that they're successful in this lawsuit. Now, um, we'll talk more about the investigation by the Texas sheriff. But first and foremost, I want to get to what... What I think, anyways, Ron DeSantis meant when he said nonsense that he's being accused of. I think that he was referring to these accusations that he transported these human beings across state lines under false pretenses. Well, within this lawsuit, it does appear as if they are suing for that very reason. Here's a specific sentence that states this. The plaintiffs had relied on the defendant's promises, support, and social services, basic human needs of which, as recent immigrants, they were in particularly desperate need. That is them saying, he transported us to Martha's Vineyard under false pretenses. He promised us these things, but he was lying. So this nonsense, well, now that's being litigated in court. So Ron DeSantis is going to have to defend himself legally for doing this. And it's wrong. Again, I already stated this. I think you already know my bias, but I, I hope that he loses this lawsuit. But there's another element of this story that I want to talk about here, and that is the cult of personality forming around Ron DeSantis. So recall from a month ago, what happened after the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago? Well, Trump supporters went ballistic. As the Daily Beast reports here, the FBI faced unprecedented MAGA threats. Also, armed Trump supporters gathered outside of an FBI office in Phoenix, as CNN reports. Um, but now the same thing is happening with Ron DeSantis. So Trump has his cult, and they are there to defend him whenever there's any accountability for his legal wrongdoings or alleged legal wrongdoings. But when it comes to Ron DeSantis, well, the same thing is happening. Because after this sheriff announced that they'd be investigating Ron DeSantis, guess what? His supporters did the same thing that Trump supporters did following the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. So as Vice News explains, Sheriff Javier Salazar of Bexar County, where the flight last week originated, announced Monday that he was opening an investigation into the flight. The sheriff told reporters that he believes the migrants were lured to Martha's Vineyard under false pretenses for a photo op and stranded, and that both county and federal laws were broken. On Tuesday, a spokesperson from the Bexar County Sheriff's Office told Vice News in an email that there have been numerous threats and influx of calls to our dispatch and administrative offices, along with hateful emails received since the investigation was announced. Additionally, as in any instance, when our office receives threats, precautionary measures will be made for safety of all personnel, the spokesperson said. So in the same way that Trump supporters went ballistic following the FBI raid in Mar-a-Lago, while well, Ron DeSantis' supporters is doing the same thing now that Ron DeSantis may face some legal accountability for his actions. They're bombarding the sheriff's office with threats, they're sending hate, and it may be to a lesser extent, less intense than Trump supporters, but nonetheless, what I want you to pay attention to is the formation of a new cult of personality in real time. There's already sort of a cult of personality around Ron DeSantis, but it's certainly not to the extent that there is this cult of personality with Donald Trump. But we are witnessing a new political cult form. 
So this is kind of besides the point with regard to the, you know, uh, migrant story. But this is how cults are formed, essentially, in politics. And what it tells you is that even if Trump is not electorally viable, if he loses in 2024, or if for whatever reason he can't run for legal issues or legal reasons, um, there's going to be a new political cult that forms because this is what the GOP and their base does. It's largely affluent people who support Republicans, um, and that's kind of a generalization, but a lot of them support Republicans, not necessarily because they believe in the policies that are being espoused by Republicans, because what are those po policies other than cruelty? So they latch onto these people, and it's not necessarily based on substance. It's all formed due to a cult of personality. And we're seeing that in real time with Ron DeSantis. So, you know, when Ron DeSantis one day is politically irrelevant, there'll be a new cult of personality because that's just the way that the GOP's base operates. But anyways, getting back to this story, ultimately, you know, Ron DeSantis might not necessarily be as cocky now that he's facing legal accountability here, but nonetheless, he is going to uh, have to deal with the consequences of his actions. Potentially, he is in hot water. Will anything come of this? Will he go to jail? No, that's not going to happen. But will he have to at least defend himself? And is that inconvenient? Yes. And I want him to have to defend himself. I want him to have to deal with this because you can't just fucking ship 50 people across state lines because you want to humiliate them and prove a political point. That's not okay. So because he possibly broke federal laws and county laws in Texas, I hope that these lawsuits, th that investigation and this lawsuit from the migrants, uh, I hope that their actions are successful and I wish them luck with the, this endeavor because this cannot be tolerated. This is cruel and it's just, it's wrong. So I want to take some time to talk about Biden's interview with Scott Pelley of 60 Minutes. There were a couple of things that he said that got some headlines and I think for good reason. And I've got to address this because these are things that are really important. First and foremost, he signaled that he may not necessarily run for president again in 2024, despite him signaling that he will indeed be doing that. He's not saying that he's not going to run, to be clear, but just that it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion yet. Now, because this is 60 Minutes, property of Paramount, I can't show you the clip because they are very bad with copyright claims. But here's what Joe Biden said specifically. Quote, my intention, as I said to begin with, is that I would run again, but it's just an intention. Okay. But is it a firm decision that I run again? That remains to be seen, Biden said. Okay. Now, look, I've stated repeatedly that I do not think that he should run again. Step aside. Let somebody else who is younger, ideally more progressive, run um, and give us a chance to actually change the country at least a little bit more because Biden has been a tried and true incrementalist, right? He's done some good things, to be clear. Canceling ten dollars to $20,000 worth of student debt is, I think, a huge move. And because of that, I think that Biden's approval rating has increased, especially among younger people, because when you actually deliver tangible benefits to them and change their lives materially, that is reflected in the polls. So for all of the shrieking from, from Republicans talking about how bad it was that Biden canceled student debt, well, they're learning that it's actually really popular. 
But still, I think that we can do better than Joe Biden, and I want us to do better than Joe Biden as a country. So I would like to see a robust Democratic Party primary. So if he is choosing to not seek a second term, he needs to make that announcement immediately after the midterms are done, because you need to allow Democrats time to repair their campaigns, right? So I don't think that he should make this decision before the midterms, because that needs to be the focus. But the second that the midterms are over, he should make it very clear he's not seeking a second term. But I want to move on to the second thing that he said because it made me a little bit less optimistic. He claimed that the pandemic was over. Now, I do have a clip for this, but unfortunately, it's it's just the audio. But nonetheless, here it is. Mr. President, first Detroit auto show in three years. Yeah. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. And I think this is a perfect example of it. Okay. He's wrong. And it's a stupid thing to say for a plethora of reasons. First and foremost, if you base the status of the pandemic on whether or not people are following proper pandemic protocols, then you could argue that we really never had a pandemic in this country because Americans consistently since the beginning of the pandemic did not want to follow proper pandemic protocols. There were states that didn't just not implement mask mandates, but states like Florida banned mask mandates in schools. So that's not really a good way to gauge whether or not we have a pandemic because americans aren't going to follow protocols because something something freedom and whatnot um but second of all it's bad strategically because in the event you need additional funding for a new bo booster shot that's available or for treatment now congress can use this against you and say well you claimed that the pandemic was over so why would you you ask us for this additional funding perhaps we could just send that fu funding to you know the military it's a bad strategy. And also, finally, it's just factually incorrect. The pandemic is still very much a thing. And to be fair to him, he acknowledged that we're still dealing with COVID, but it still is a pandemic. It's not endemic yet. It's not over. It's still very much a pandemic. Let's look at some numbers here. So as of September 18th, we're averaging 464 deaths each day due to COVID-19. Now, epidemiologist Caitlin Jettelina argues that this is a rate of death that cannot be accepted. It is still too high, even if it is lower. Furthermore, Dr. Megan Ranney adds, is the pandemic different? Sure, we have vaccines and infection-induced immunity. We have treatments, we have tests while they last. The fatality rate is way down, and so we respond to it differently. But over with 400 deaths a day, I call malarkey, and she's exactly correct. Now, hospitalizations are also down, but people who are older or immunocompromised are still disproportionately affected by COVID-19, and these folks are effectively being sacrificial lambs so that the rest of us can pretend as if the pandemic is over and everything is back to normal again, and I find that wrong. And even though deaths and hospitalizations overall have decreased, Biden's administration is ignoring what is now the largest mass disabling event in human history as millions of Americans Americans suffer from the effects of long COVID. Now, we're finding out that vaccines, while still very important, only decrease the risk of long COVID by about 15%, according to a study that looked at 13 million people. So we're still seeing hundreds of people die from COVID-19 every single day. We're witnessing the equivalent of a 9-11 every single week due to COVID-19 as thousands of people die every single week. We're witnessing the biggest mass disabling event in human history. And the president is irresponsibly declaring that the pandemic is over. 
not a statement based in science, data, or facts at all. And another reason why it's bad, not that the president is able to control behavior anyways, uh, is because this <laughs> is going to have at least somewhat of an effect on behavior because as Eric Topol, a physician, points out, telling Americans that the pandemic is over isn't going to encourage the two-thirds of Americans who haven't gotten their booster shot to get one. And getting your booster is important. And there's a new booster that's available that I think that most people don't even know about. So there's a bivalent booster that has the uh, protection against the original strain and Omicron. Now, it's not necessarily the uh, BA4 and 5 Omicron uh, subvariant, but it's still going to provide you with additional antibodies. Now, there's clinical trials that are being conducted currently, so we'll have to wait and see how effective they are at preventing symptoms when it comes to Omicron. But it's still a booster that nobody knows is available currently. And I myself made an appointment to get my booster, my second booster in a couple of days. But how many people actually know about this? So to pretend as if the pandemic is over, that's irresponsible from a societal standpoint. But as the president to say this is not OK, it's wrong and you should do better. But Biden for months now has just pretended as if the pandemic is over. This is the exact strategy that Trump implemented. But I don't think that politically this is going to hurt Biden as much as it hurt Donald Trump because people nowadays are just kind of fed up with COVID-19. And look, I don't blame them. I myself am fed up with COVID-19. I engage in more risky behavior now than I did a year ago because I'm vaxxed, I'm boosted, I'm about to get my second booster. So yeah, I'm around friends and family with no masks, you know, sure. But to pretend as if it's over, that's not going to be realistic because it's not over. People are still dying. It's still a threat. It's not endemic. It's something that we have to take into account. And maybe if not we as individuals take this into account, it's more important for the president of the United States to take this into account. So, you know, there's a lot of things from this interview that rubbed me the wrong way. But, you know, overall, let's hope that the one thing that comes out of this is that he's actually not going to seek a second term because then I could put aside the COVID things if he chooses to step down and allow us the potential to nominate somebody who's at least somewhat more progressive in 2024. Because I I don't think that Biden, you know, getting back to the 2024 discussion, I think it's going to really hinge on whether or not his approval rating stays this high. I think it's probably going to go down if he doesn't deliver as frequently as he has been as of late, at least somewhat. But, you know, I think that if Biden were to run, he has a shot against Trump. But against DeSantis, I, I just don't necessarily think that he's going to be able to compete. But that's yet to be seen as of this, you know, day and time. Either way, I think that it's only fair that Democratic voters have the opportunity to make their voices heard and perhaps choose somebody different. Now, it may not be somebody who I like. It probably will be another neoliberal. But either way, I think that Biden should step down but either way if he's not going to step down and he plans to be president for another four years and seek a second term don't say dumb things like the pandemic is over if it's demonstrably untrue so i'm preparing i'm this country boy you know i'm not that smart and he's that preacher he's a smart man wear these nice suits so he's going to show up and embarrass me at the debate october the 14th and i'm just waiting you know i show up and i'm gonna do my best Alrighty then, that was Herschel Walker, the Republican nominee for the state of Georgia for a U.S. Senate seat, a little bit important, you know, very uh, powerful position, uh, admitting in what I'm assuming was a brief moment of honesty that he is not that smart and predicting that he'll be embarrassed by his Democratic opponent, Raphael Warnock, at their first debate set to take place on October 14th. 
the first question that I have is why would you admit this? Um, second of all, why would you run for the United States Senate if you know you're not that smart? See, this is kind of weird, like something doesn't add up, and with all things, when it comes to the GOP, there's likely an ulterior motive. He probably wasn't, just being honest for a brief moment. There's probably some sort of tactic behind what he's saying here, and we'll get to that here. But what's weird is that when he was asked why he's been dodging debates with Raphael Warnock, he implied that Raphael Warnock is afraid of him after he is saying, well, look, I know I'm not that smart and it's probably gonna be a bloodbath, but nonetheless, he's afraid of me? Well, that doesn't make any sense. But anyways, this is what Latrice Williams of Savannah Morning News explains. When asked about why he declined to debate Warnock initially, he became aggravated and said he had to hunt down Warnock and told him to put his big man pants on. Quote, he may not even show up for that one, said Walker. He has made every excuse not to show up. I begged him until I chased him down, and then he decided he was going to show up on October 14th. I didn't agree to do his debate because it wasn't fair. A fair debate is doing it in front of the voters, and I've agreed. So on one hand, it seems like he's being momentarily honest, but then in the same breath, he's saying, well, look, he's been dodging my debates. I rejected all of his debate offers, but, you know, he's been uh, dodging my debate offer, which it doesn't really make sense. And this was essentially the response from Warnock's campaign in response to this allegation that Raphael Warnock has been dodging debates when he has no reason to. Here's what they said. Shortly after the May 2022 primary, Reverend Warnock was the first to announce that he would participate in three debates and in June named the three debates he agreed to and invited Walker to do the same for nearly two months. Walker continued to dodge committing to any debate, a complete reversal from his previous statement that Warnock could call the time he make the place, I'm ready to go. Then Walker went out of his way to accept a totally different debate than Reverend Warnock. So there's some disingenuity here, obviously, but Herschel Walker is a Republican, so I feel like that just kind of comes with the territory. There's this expectation that they're going to be dishonest and deceitful, so this isn't really surprising. But that's besides the point. Why would Herschel Walker say this? It feels like something that he wouldn't necessarily say because somebody who isn't actually smart probably wouldn't be savvy enough to recognize that they're not very smart. It seems like a tactic, right? And I don't think that this is a tactic coming from Walker's campaign, but perhaps from Republicans. But I think that Adrian Lawrence put it best by saying, this is likely a setup to make Warnock look like a bully, which the right typically has no issue with so long as it's doing the bullying. And that right there is what I think is going on here. I don't think that you say this to lower expectations because you know, you're know you expecting to do bad and perhaps you you don't wanna get anyone's hopes up. There's going to be this idea that you know Warnock is gonna come in swinging and they're going to try to portray him as the bully. Perhaps you know they'll make it seem as if Warnock is ableist for going hard against Herschel Walker, given that Herschel Walker has admitted that he has, uh, I don't know what specifically he said he has, but he has like multiple personality disorders. There's, there's a lot of underlying mental health issues there. Um, and you can criticize somebody and debate them and be pretty harsh if they're running to be the United States Senate. That doesn't necessarily make 
you ableist. And I don't think that the U, the uh, the GOP is going to use that particular rhetoric. But I think that Adrian Lawrence nailed it by saying they're going to try to portray Warnock as the bully. But this should tee up an argument against Warnock saying, well, OK, if you're so fragile, if you think that I bullied you, perhaps you aren't strong enough to be in this position of power. And being an individual who suffers from mental health issues, as Herschel Walker clearly does, that doesn't necessarily make him inferior. That doesn't mean that he's a bad person or, you know, any less worthy than anyone else. The reason why he's a less worthy candidate is because he can't serve. There are some individuals who need help and people with mental health issues to that degree, they shouldn't be placed in a position of power. They need to be given help. And the family of Herschel Walker should step in and say, listen, this isn't necessarily something that you should be doing because look, this is a position of immense power. Like this shouldn't be your fucking vanity project. This shouldn't be something that you choose to do because you're bored and you have friends within the Republican Party and you're friends with Donald Trump. This is a position where you will be affecting U.S. policy for at least six years. So it's no small thing. So if they're trying to tee up this debate, I hope that, you know, Reverend Warnock's team anticipates it and they find a way to, uh, you know, respond. But, you know, I'm not sure either way. You know, um, this is probably regardless if it, if it was intentional or not, the most honest that I've ever seen Herschel Walker be. And perhaps the only fact check with regard to Herschel Walker where I get to claim true. He's right on both accounts, not only that he will probably be embarrassed by Raphael Warnock, but that he's not that smart. I think that's abundantly evident just by listening to him speak. Uh, and whenever he tries to bring up policy, it's a complete disaster. So, yeah, maybe don't run for positions of power if you're not very smart. In 2022 America, political ads are getting increasingly bizarre. And every single Republican at this point has at least once created an ad where they like write socialism on a piece of paper or cardboard and they shoot it or blow it up. And I feel like that's almost a rite of passage at this moment. But a GOP candidate from the state of Utah created a cringeworthy GOP ad to end all cringeworthy GOP ads. She decided to launch her campaign. Wait for it. By creating a rap music video i'm not joking about this and i don't even know how to describe this so let's just watch hey utah district 12 listen up right here there's a new name on the ballot for the senate this year my name is linda paulson republican and awesome love god and family and the constitution i tried to get another conservative to run Nobody could do it, so I'm getting it done. I'm pro-religious freedom, pro-life, pro-police. The right to bear arms and the right to free speech. I want less government control and regulation. Want to stop and expose all political corruption. Where's integrity, morality, accountability? Government programs should lead to self-sufficiency and support traditional family as the fundamental unit of society. But in schools, they're pushing for new beliefs. Just to clarify, as a female adult, I know what a woman is. I love this country. It's a blessing to be free, but freedom comes with 
responsibility. The Constitution needs to be protected, not changed or disregarded, but resurrected. If you share my values, if you like what I stand for, then give me your vote on the 8th of November. District 12 needs a choice. Let me be your voice, Linda Paulson. Linda Paulson for Senate. Linda, that was incredible. <laughs> you all are hating. That was incredible. Linda, listen, I think that you should I think that you should actually send this to record labels, post this on SoundCloud, drop an EP, possibly an LP. That was just that was so that was so good for all the wrong reasons. You know it. You know you enjoyed that. Um, first of all, I love how she's one of these people who's tone deaf for multiple reasons she's both politically tone deaf and musically tone deaf and on top of that just rhyming words that don't rhyme it's just like <laughs> um so you know it, it could be better uh, but it's still really good i would give it a solid eight out of ten uh, and i think that anthony fantano would agree with me on that uh but listen folks I'm not going to try to do some deep dive into her political campaign uh go over why she's a bad candidate I mean, I think that's self-evident. This is not a substantive story. This is just one of those stories where I think that we owe it to ourselves to soak it in because people like Linda Paulson, you know, they don't come along very often, but when they do come along, I think that we have to seize the moment and truly soak it all up because this is really enjoyable. And, you know, this is going to be a dead meme in like a week or two. So if Linda Paulson actually wanted to extend her 15 minutes of fame, she should drop an LP or an EP rather immediately. Okay. Now, listen, I'm known for making wacky intros or outros rather on my videos. I don't know how to extract the vocals from that, but if somebody found a way to get the vocals without the music, I promise you, I would create the most fire remix imaginable because I'm pretty decent at mixing. So if I could mix that in, it would be great. Um, now, I will say I did try to remix it a little bit. I, I ran the song through the Wub machine and I added some ad libs from Lil Jon. And I think that the result is honestly spectacular. So this is my remix. Uh, Linda Paulson featuring Lil Jon, directed by yours truly. Mike Figueredo. District 12, listen up right here. There's a new name on the ballot for the Senate this year. Bitch. My name is Linda Paulson, Republican and awesome. Yeah. God and family and the Constitution. What? So what do you think? I don't think that it could beat the original, but it's still fairly good given that, you know, I, I only worked on it for like 20 or 30 minutes, which is a lot of time to dedicate on a Monday when I'm trying to film like multiple videos. But still, um, if, if I had access to the vocals, I would be so good. Now, the only way that Linda Paulson could one up this is if she brought in all the MAGA rappers like Tom, uh, what's Tom? 
What's the MAGA rapper, the blonde dude with the face tattoos? I'm, I'm blanking on his name. I was going to say Tom Holland, but I'm pretty sure that that's Spider-Man. No, it's it's Tom McDonald. That's who it is. So she brought in Tom McDonald, brought in Buddy Brown, country MAGA sensation, and they did this like giant We Are The World-esque remix of this song. It might be so cringeworthy that it literally rips a hole in the space-time continuum, but it would be worth it just to see the way that it looks, just to see what that level of cringe would be like. But overall, look, folks, I, I want to ask you all this question and comment below, okay? Is she a cringeworthy grandma who should just not have done this, or is she kind of a genius? Look, I might shock some of you, but low-key, I think she's a genius because nobody would know who Linda Paulson is had she not subjected herself to that. Is it cringeworthy? Of course. Is she never going to live it down? Obviously, she's never going to live this down. Her grandchildren are never going to want to be seen in public with her again. But this went massively viral for all the wrong reasons. I'll grant you that, yes. But millions of views... I mean, this is something that is, I think, honestly, an effective political tactic. Look, Republican ads are stupid, okay? Democrat ads are stupid as well, but Republican ads in particular are very fucking imbecilic. But if you're going to do a dumb ad, Dan Crenshaw does it, uh, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis did a sort of parody of, of Top Gun. If you're going to do it, then you want to get the most eyeballs. And that's exactly what Linda did. So I'm sorry, Linda might be a homophobe, asshole who is you know this traditional republican who only wants to enact policies that harm people but is she musically at least a legend fuck yes she is and we have to admit this okay so what she did here is smart i hope that what she does is spawn like a bunch of copycat republicans like i want to see a rap no i don't i was gonna say i want to see a rap of ted cruz but i don't want to see that but i want to see raps from other republicans who embarrass themselves just for views and clicks. If you are willing to humiliate yourself because you have no policy substance, I want to see that shit. And I know that you do too. So I've got nothing left to say about this. Uh, somebody, if you can get me the vocals, I will bless you with a really good remix. But Linda, keep it up. I think that you should shop this around to record labels. It's fire. Drop it on SoundCloud. I'm a fan and I can't not stand Linda Paulson after this. I'm sorry. You all, you all feel the same way. Don't lie. In case you missed it, last week, Thursday, we learned that Senate Democrats will be postponing the vote to codify marriage equality. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, Chuck Schumer said there would be a vote on this within a couple of weeks, despite them not having the 10 Republican votes needed to break a filibuster. But now they're postponing it and they're moving the vote until after the election. I don't even know what to say about this. This is political malpractice. This is them shooting themselves in the foot. This is them handing Republicans a huge gift for obvious reasons. Unsurprisingly, the New York Times reports, the decision came as a relief to Republicans, the vast majority of whom opposed the measure and were worried that voting against it so close to the elections would alienate voters. It spared Republican senators in difficult re-election races, including Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and Marco Rubio of Florida, a fraught choice of casting a vote that would anger their party's conservative base or one that could sour independent voters in the closing days of the campaign. So in other words, they just handed Republicans a political gift. Earlier this year, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, Democrats were on a roll getting Republicans to show their cards on the right to contraception, marriage equality, abortion, 
And now, rather than forcing them to take a position, Democrats are postponing this until after the election. Why? Because the sponsor of this bill, Tammy Baldwin, is saying that they don't have the votes right now, but they can get that 10 votes after the election, assuming the makeup of the Senate changes. The problem with this is now you're guaranteeing essentially that it's not going to pass because as it stands currently, Democrats are still poised to lose the House of Representatives. Even if their electoral prospects have improved, they're still most likely going to lose the House. So in the event the Senate were to pass this, well, the House would have to vote on this amended version. And if Republicans control the House, it's not gonna pass. Now, Democrats have been kind of going about this the wrong way. I think they haven't been harsh enough on Republicans, but they've been pretty persistent. But they tried to pander to conservatives by like including amendments that wouldn't necessarily water this down, but just pandered to them about their feigned concern over religious liberty and how this decision might impact that. It won't. It'd be the same status quo as it is right now. But still, they tried to pander and they realized that they couldn't get those votes. So they saw that Republicans, at least some Republicans, were waffling. And rather than forcing them to take a stand, they're just saying, nah, we'll do it after the election. It's just so stupid. Now, who's responsible for this? Well, the buck stops with leadership, so Chuck Schumer primarily, but he is taking cues from Tammy Baldwin. The New York Times continues, we're very confident that the bill will pass, Ms. Baldwin said on Thursday, but we will need a little more time. Senator Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York and the majority leader, have been eager to hold a vote before the elections, even if only to put Republicans on the record, voting against the broadly popular position on a social issue, but he deferred to Ms. Baldwin and senators in both parties with whom she had been working to reach a compromise. And this is a consistent issue with Chuck Schumer. Now is where you pull rank, Chuck. You don't say, well, all right, if you think that you can get the 10 votes after the election, fine. No, no, no. Pull rank and say, Tammy, we're holding the vote on it next week. If you don't have the 10 votes, too bad. But Tammy is saying, no, 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 I can get you. I can get you the votes. I just need more time because she actually wants this to pass. But you don't pass this bill or get the votes needed to break the filibuster by playing patty cake with Republicans. You shame them. You force them to support this, and if they don't support it, that's their loss. They're the ones who are jeopardizing their support with independence in their tight races. Now, Tammy Baldwin, she cares about this issue. This is an LGBTQ plus senator, so I don't doubt her sincerity here, but her political strategy is completely brain dead here, and by postponing this, you are damning this bill, essentially, and it's just, it's so stupid. It's the dumbest thing that they could possibly do. And it reminds me of how in 2018, Senate Democrats expedited 15 of Trump's judicial nominees, all so they can get back to campaigning. And today, years later, we're dealing with the ramifications of that, of you just expediting these judicial appointments for Donald Trump. So Democrats, they never think like long-term, they only think short-term, what's gonna benefit them within you know the near future. And it's just, it's really infuriating. Now, thankfully, not all Democrats agreed with this. Many of them spoke out. Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, she kind of just put out a mealy mouth statement saying we should have marriage equality now, not necessarily referencing how bad this was of a strategy, but others did take a more pointed criticism here. Nettia Vasquez, for example, tweeted out, delaying a vote on the Respect for Marriage Act until after the election is a disservice to the American people. Voters deserve to know whether or not their senators support marriage equality. The Senate needs to vote on this bill now. 
Now, Elizabeth Warren added, we need to vote on equal marriage today. Every single member of Congress should be willing to go on the record. And if there are Republicans who don't want to vote on that before the election, I assume it is because they're on the wrong side of history. And she's exactly correct about that. I'm not saying that you should just treat this legislation as symbolic legislation, right? It does need to be codified in the event the Supreme Court does cho uh, choose to uh, revisit Obergfell v. Hodges. However, even if it fails right now, that's not to say that you can't have a vote later. Have a vote now if it fails. Then, you know, if you think that you can get the 10 votes after the election, try it again. There's no reason to not hold the vote now. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. If anything, you know, you might scare Republicans, maybe at least one, into supporting this because they don't want to alienate independents who they need in these tight races. But they're choosing to back away. And this is like Tammy Baldwin's recommendation. But again, the buck stops with leadership. And it shows you that Chuck Schumer just doesn't know what he's doing. And he doesn't know how to pull rank. He doesn't know how to be a leader of his caucus. And we've seen this before. Individuals like Claire McCaskill says that she loves Chuck Schumer because his leadership style is more laissez-faire, where he just kind of lets people do what they need to do to win their seats or whatever. So if you're in a purple state, if you want to LARP as a Republican, that's perfectly fine. But he needs to do what Mitch McConnell does, reign in his caucus, control the narrative, and assert control over situations, especially if you have a lot of ways to win over Republicans. So overall, this is incredibly idiotic, but not surprising because Democrats have been known to shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to political strategy, and they're just handing Republicans a victory for absolutely no reason here. And it's pathetic, and they should be shamed because of this. I mean, you saw the way that House Democrats exposed Republicans on issue after issue after issue. There's no reason why the Senate can't do the same thing, but they're not doing that. And it shows you that leadership needs to change because of how bad it is currently. Like, this should not stand. There needs to be a vote on this, regardless if you have the 10 votes or not. Make them show their cards. Don't give them a victory. Jesus Christ. I got to be honest with you. I've been around for a long time in state politics and federal politics. I've never seen stranger bedfellows than Bernie Sanders and the... Uh, uh, the uh, extreme liberal left siding up with the Republican leadership in the caucus. I've never seen this happen. So teaming up with Republicans to block portions of the Democratic Party's agenda is now apparently bad, according to Joe Manchin, of all people, who's been doing just that for nearly two years now. Interesting. Now, he later goes on in that same video to accuse Bernie Sanders of doing revenge politics, which we'll talk about, and I'll play more of the press conference for you. But the reason why he's so angry at Bernie Sanders and Republicans in this instance is because they're not playing ball when it comes to his dirty deal. Now, what is the dirty deal? Well, the dirty deal is basically a provision within an upcoming must-pass budget bill that accelerates permits for fossil fuel projects. It scales back environmental reviews, which would accelerate the development of fossil fuel projects like the Mountain Valley Pipeline that mansion and his donors have been aggressively pushing. Now, I'll talk about why this is being included in must-pass legislation here in a moment, but Bernie Sanders is opposed to this because obviously this is bad for the environment. Republicans, they are too opposed to this, at least at this point in time, 
but not because they care about the environment. They're opposed to this specifically because it doesn't go far enough. It's not a good enough giveaway to the fossil fuel industry. So you could say technically Bernie Sanders and Republicans are politically aligned when it comes to this vote, but they're aligned for very, very different reasons, to be clear. Now, all of Democratic Party leadership, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, they all are hellbent on putting this provision that Joe Biden or Joe Manchin rather desperately wants into the upcoming must pass bill, because this was kind of the stipulation that was used to get Manchin to support the Inflation Reduction Act. As Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, as part of a deal to secure Manchin's support for the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, Democratic leaders agreed to hold a vote on permitting reforms that the senator and his industry allies have long demanded. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of California are expected to attach a permitting reform bill to a government funding measure that must pass by the end of the month to avoid a shutdown. The White House said Monday that President Joe Biden is committed to advancing permitting reforms. So in short, this is the Democratic Party scratching each other's back. Joe Manchin supported the Inflation Reduction Act, and now they're paying it forward, giving him this fossil fuel giveaway that his donors have been lobbying for for a very long time. Now, the question is, where do House progressives stand on this particular uh, provision? Well, on September 9th, Raul Grijalva, along with more than 70 different House Democrats, sent a letter to Democratic Party leadership urging them to not keep this provision in the must-pass bill and also explaining why this is harmful and whatnot. But this letter is basically toothless, seeing that there's no implicit threat that they'll be voting against this legislation. Now, Nancy Pelosi is known for not bringing bills to the floor for a vote unless she has the votes needed to pass it. So House Democrats, progressives in particular, can kill it unilaterally if they simply say, we're going to vote against this if you're going to put this in a must-pass bill. And Pelosi wouldn't want to have there be this government shutdown right before the midterms. So progressives have a lot of leverage here, but they're not necessarily saying we're going to vote against this. We're just saying we're urging you to not put this in the must-pass bill. But why would Nancy Pelosi, who wants to see this pass, keep this out of the must-pass bill, knowing that you're going to vote against this? She knows that you don't want to support this if you're a progressive. So that's why they're putting this in the must-pass bill, because they know that you don't want to be blamed for a government shutdown. So... You know, if progressives say, nope, you don't have our support, if this is going to lead to a government shutdown, so be it, they would take out this provision because they don't want a government shutdown. But because progressives are just saying, oh, well, we urge you to not put this in the must-pass bill, it's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to really affect change this way. Uh, having said that, though, that hasn't stopped the opposition to this from growing. Environmental groups, for example, have come out against this. And since Joe Manchin is still facing pushback from these groups, from progressives, even if it may be not necessarily that harsh, well, he's enlisted the fossil fuel industry for help. But again, I've just got to say, if progressives in the House followed Bernie Sanders' lead, he said, I'm voting against this. If they did that same thing, you know, there wouldn't need to be this huge kerfuffle. It would be over. It would be taken out of the bill because Democrats are not going to want a government shutdown before the election. Now, Republicans, on the other hand, they would love to see a government shutdown before the election, but, you know, if they can somehow blame Democrats for that. But we don't necessarily know how this is going to play out yet. Joe Manchin, however, because there's so much opposition that's growing, uh, he decided to hold a press conference to address the critics. And I don't know how to describe this as anything but a temper tantrum because he 
accuses Bernie Sanders, as I stated earlier, of doing revenge politics. Um, and take a look at specifically what he says. He is offering one small concession in releasing the text because this was previously being negotiated behind closed doors. But take a look at what he says about Bernie Sanders and progressives specifically. First of all, the text will be out tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll have the text in full. That's a week before I think we'll probably move or do anything on the CR. So there'll be no ifs, ands, and betweens and guessing and assuming and things of that sort. Uh, and that gives everyone plenty of time. And, and you know, I, I, I thought about this, and, and I've watched this whole thing unfold from all different sides. I guess the old saying that uh, politics makes strange bedfellows, i got to be honest with you, I've been around for a long time in state politics and federal politics. I've never seen stranger bedfellows than Bernie Sanders and the, uh, uh, the uh, extreme liberal left siding up with the Republican leadership in the caucus. I've never seen this happen. Uh, so it's, uh, it's come to me, what I'm hearing is it's like a revenge politics. Uh, and basically revenge towards one person, me. And I'm thinking, this is not about me. This is about something uh, uh, that Bernie has never, Bernie has never supported anything about permitting reforms. And you're facing a country today, we've passed this out to you, I think, permitting timelines. If you look at what we do in the United States, five to ten years, that's a minimum. If you look at basically states that have, uh, countries that have vigorous environmental uh, over oversights, one to three years, one to three years. And then if you look at what's happening now because of the energy crisis we have in the Ukraine war, you have EU is considering emergency bypassing of all environmental reviews, and we don't think we're in a crisis, and we're not going to do anything about it, and we can. So in other words, Bernie Sanders is doing revenge politics because he's mad at you for blocking the Build Back Better bill, which was better than the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, sure, you could say that maybe there are some House Democrats who are vengeful, and they should be, to be clear. But this is all about principle. This is about standing up for the environment and marginalized communities, indigenous people who these pipelines that you're pushing through will affect. But Manchin doesn't really care about that. He's desperate and he wants to make sure that leadership doesn't get cold feet and they don't pull this from the must-pass bill. So this is all the more reason for progressives to resist it. Now, also notice how he's using a crisis to try to push this agenda that his donors have wanted for a very long time. But he's trying to say, oh, we have this crisis and we have to do this right now. Let's get this done. No, motherfucker, you've been pushing this for so long. Don't pretend. Uh, now, one more video I want to play for you. So this is from the same uh, press conference, and he's now going to turn his attention towards Republicans, and he makes it very clear they are still friends. He emphasizes this all throughout the press conference. But he's trying to make Republicans weary that they'll be seen as sympathetic towards a socialist Bernie Sanders if they choose to side with him by letting the, you know, uh, perfect be the enemy of the good because this giveaway even if it's not what they wanted it's not everything that that they had dreamed for with regard to their fossil fuel donors um it's still really good and so you know support this otherwise you might be seen as aligning with bernie sanders and since he's bad you should probably support my giveaway to the fossil fuel industry even if it's not as robust and comprehensive as yours let's watch but to have an opportunity that my uh I know there's part of my Democrats, uh, uh, the caucus, and the far left, uh, liberals, uh, the Bernie 
uh, is, is so proud of. Uh, we're never going to be for this. I knew that. This is a bipartisan. It doesn't pass without the Republicans. And to have something that my Republican colleagues, and the leadership knows this better than anybody in Republican, you know, and they'll see this when the text comes out, and they know that basically what they try to do, and I says, I applaud my colleague, Senator Capito, for putting something out and dropping a marker, a messaging bill, that they support, that they support it. They support permitting reform. How in the world do you go home and explain it? Well, the perfect just wasn't perfect enough, so the perfect will be the enemy of the good when you've had no movement. So when do you ever see you're going to change the permitting to weaken have the American people get relief from the high cost? When you take a, a pipeline, uh, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, nothing puts more product into the market quicker and helps relieve the shortages that we have right now. That pipeline's gone from $3.3 billion over $6.2 or $6.4 billion just because of the permitting process they're going through. So I'm just saying we're looking at it in a reasonable, responsible way. Take me out of it. It shouldn't be revenge. If Bernie's upset with me, fine, I understand that. But let's look at the American public. Let's look at our constituents. If my Republican friends and colleagues and the leadership in the Republican Party is attacking me personally, take it away from me personally because that's going to be hard to go home and explain. Well, we did this and we voted against it because of Joe Manchin. Makes no sense whatsoever. None whatsoever. So we're in this quandary right now. They're going to vote, and it's going to be in the CR. Okay? And if they're willing to say we're going to close down the government because of a personal attack on me or basically not looking at the good of the, of the country, this is what makes people sick about politics. It makes me sick about it. You know me. I vote across. If it, looks, if it looks good, I don't care whether it's a Republican or a Democrat idea. I'm for it. As long as I can explain it. A lot of it makes sense. A lot of my Republican friends do things that I support. And a lot of my Democrat. And there's things that both do that I don't. This type of politics is something I can't accept. This is the type of politics that makes me sick and makes the American public sick. And that, my friends, is a masterclass in moral grandstanding. Do you want to know what actually makes Americans sick, Joe Manchin? It's when craven, sniveling politicians like you pretend to care about working class people while you exclusively do the bidding of your donors. This time, it's your fossil fuel industry donors. And seeing that Joe Manchin is a modern day coal baron, you know, he views this as personal. So I just love that Joe Manchin is throwing a temper tantrum because he thought that Republicans would support this because, I mean, this is a giveaway to the fossil fuel industry. But right now, Republicans, even if you're doing this giveaway to the fossil fuel industry, they don't want to support anything that would be perceived as a win for Democrats. And the ones who are really playing revenge politics in this instance, to be fair, are Republicans who don't like Manchin because he betrayed them by supporting the Inflation Reduction Act. So, you know, we'll have to see how this plays out, but I just love that Joe Manchin is squirming because uh, I hope this fails. And if Republicans are the ones who end up tanking it, great, because it shouldn't go through. I don't care what reason they're using to justify voting against this. What I care about is they vote against this and it fails. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system, thereby cheating all of us. He did this with the help of the other defendants, his children. Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, 
and Eric Trump. And former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg and Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney. Mr. Trump and the Trump Organization repeatedly and persistently manipulated the value of assets to induce banks to lend money to the Trump Organization on more favorable terms than would otherwise have been available to the company. To pay lower taxes, to satisfy continuing loan agreements, and to induce insurance companies to provide insurance coverage for higher limits and at lower premiums. This conduct was all in violation of Executive Law Section 6312, which gives the Attorney General broad and special powers to go after persistent and repeated fraud and illegality. As part of demonstrating illegality under that section of Law 6312, we show that they violated several state criminal laws. That was New York Attorney General Letitia James announcing a major lawsuit against Donald Trump and his children. Now, we'll get more about the details and specifically what they're alleging here, but I just want to show you this tweet from her, which adds that we're seeking to make Trump pay $250 million, ban the Trumps from running New York businesses for good, ban Trump and Trump organization from buying commercial real estate in New York for five years, and we're making a criminal referral to the U.S. Department of Justice. So she's going for the jugular. And she should. This family has gotten away with so many crimes throughout the course of their career that to let them go proves that we don't have an actual functioning justice system. We have a two-tier justice system where anyone who's a peasant, they get prosecuted when they commit crimes. But when elites who are wealthy commit crimes, we let them go scot-free. So I think that this is very important that she's pursuing Donald Trump. Now, predictably, he had an absolute meltdown and hilariously, he accused New York Attorney General Letitia James of racism. So I guess that her going after him is racism. Trump is, I guess, claiming he's the victim of racism. Here's what he wrote on Truth Social. Another witch hunt by a racist Attorney General Letitia James, who failed in her run for governor, getting almost zero support from the public, and now is doing poorly against Law & Order AG candidate, highly respected Michael Henry. I never thought this case would be brought until I saw her really bad poll numbers. She is a fraud who campaigned on a Get Trump platform, despite the fact that the city is one of the crime and murder disasters of the world under her watch. So something, something, political witch hunt, something, something, I'm the victim of racism, me, Donald Trump. Okay, now his sons responded, and these dimwits basically echoed the same exact sentiment with Trump Jr. claiming that this was a witch hunt as well and pinning that post to his Twitter account. Um, you have him claiming that this is a ploy so she can win her election, and Eric Trump basically saying the same thing. But I love how they're just attacking Letitia James, but they're not actually addressing the substance here. This is a 220-page lawsuit that goes over their crimes in painstaking detail, and all they can say is, well, this is a political witch hunt. Okay, but did you or did you not do what she's alleging in this lawsuit? They won't answer that presumably because, well, they don't want to self-incriminate. Now, as the New York Times explains, the statements, yearly records that include the company's estimated value of his holdings and debts, wildly inflated the worth of nearly every one of his marquee properties, from Mar-a-Lago in Florida to Trump Tower and 40 Wall Street in Manhattan, according to the lawsuit. The company also routinely spurned the assessment of outside experts. 
after a bank ordered an appraisal that found 40 Wall Street was worth $200 million, the Trumps promptly valued it at well over twice that number. Overall, the lawsuit said that 11 of Mr. Trump's annual financial statements included more than 200 false and misleading asset valuations. His company, the Trump Organization, provided the fraudulent financial statements to lenders and insurers, her suit said, quote, to obtain beneficial financial terms, including lower interest rates and lower premiums. All told, Ms. James said, he was able to obtain a quarter of a billion dollars in ill-gotten gains, money that she now wants the company to forfeit. So I'm wondering, why won't the Trump family, him or his sons, address this? 200 false or misleading statements? I mean, why can't they address the substance? Hmm, I wonder why. Perhaps it's because maybe they're guilty of the alleged crimes here. Now, I just want to go over the week that Trump has been having. So this is what Matt Fuller of the Daily Beast writes on Twitter. Trump's last 24 hours, special master basically says if Trump didn't declassify these docs, he has no case. Trump will face a sexual battery suit under a new law. And now New York Attorney General sues Trump organization for $250 million. Yeah. So needless to say, he's not having the best uh, week or 24 hours to be specific. Now, uh, he won't address the crimes that are being alleged in this 220 page lawsuit. And also his propagandists won't as well. I want to play a clip from Fox News. So they were airing the press conference from Attorney General Letitia James for a moment up until she started to specifically name the crimes that are being alleged. And then they promptly turned away and moved on. Take a look. So the New York State Attorney General has just announced uh, a rather lengthy and detailed uh, layout of the lawsuit that she is putting against Donald Trump, former president. Some of this is really inside baseball unless it's your tax dollars in New York. And some people may even accuse it of being political because we're 48 days away from the midterm elections. And both presidents, the current and the past, um, are certainly being looked at uh, to help candidates out. So we'll see how this plays out. We're certainly going to cover it and we'll bring you highlights as they happen. But the big headline in all of this is the lawsuit by the state of New York today just announced by Letitia James. Let's move on. Oh, I love that so much. Nothing screams guilt like refusing to tell your viewers what is actually being alleged because perhaps as dumb as Fox News's audience is and as brainwashed as they are, if you actually lay out in great detail what is being alleged here with this lawsuit, maybe they won't have a counter. But, you know, since they don't necessarily know the details, since Fox News and Trump's propagandists won't provide them with it, they have to just assume, oh, well, this is a witch hunt. Okay. But let's just assume for a second that this is indeed a witch hunt and Letitia James has a personal vendetta against Donald Trump. Let's assume that that is the case. Did he or did he not do the crimes that are alleged here? What about the 200 false or misleading statements? The money that he took from taxpayers in New York? What about all that? Two things can be true at once. Perhaps maybe she does want to do this witch hunt. I'm not saying that that is indeed the case, but that doesn't discount the fact that he also committed fraud potentially. That's what's being alleged here. So Fox News viewers, they can just throw their hands up and claim, oh, witch hunt, because they don't have the details. But if you have the details, they're pretty damning. Again, if a normal person did this, if they misled authorities on tax documents and overvalued assets, they would go to jail. But because it's Donald Trump, I guess they're just expecting him to get away with it. 
But, I mean, it seems as if the walls are closing in on him, given how many lawsuits he's now dealing with and potential lawsuits and potential indictments he's dealing with. But still, that doesn't necessarily mean that he'll serve one day in prison because he's an elite. And in this country, elites usually do get away with crimes that they commit. But either way, just the stress that he's feeling because of his crimes, in my opinion, that is good. Like, I want to see him held accountable legally, to be clear. But just knowing right now that he's squirming and frustrated by all of this, that in and of itself is just a beautiful thing to think about. Rashida Tlaib is being attacked by her own Democratic Party colleagues for saying the most benign, innocuous thing ever. It's common sense if you understand the particulars of the situation that she's talking about. But what did she say? Well, this is her quote, according to Jerusalem Post. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values yet back Israel's apartheid government, said Rashida Tlaib, U.S. Representative for Michigan's 13th Congressional District, during an online advocacy seminar held on Tuesday by Americans for Justice in Palestine Action and co-sponsored by American Muslims for Palestine. She continues, the need to oppose Israel's government apartheid rule is obvious. The path to freedom for Palestine is long and daunting. We must see through to its end. We owe it to not only Palestinians, but oppressed people all over the world who understand that our struggles are linked to one another. So I think that what she's saying is common sense. You cannot support a system of apartheid and claim to be a progressive. But Democrats who saw this, they are purposefully misrepresenting what she's saying to, of course, claim that she is anti-Semitic, when in actuality, they are the ones who are bigoted, they are Islamophobic, and they don't believe that Palestinians deserve human rights. So Jerry Nadler, for example, called out Rashida Tlaib responding to the quote shared by Jerusalem Post saying, I fundamentally reject the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive. Now, notice how he did a little bit of a switcheroo here. She did not say, I do not support Israel's right to exist. She's just saying, I do not support their system of oppression and apartheid against Palestinians. But he's saying, oh, no, no, you, you just said that you don't support their right to exist. So do you remember that viral video? It was from a couple of months ago during Pride when this guy, this conservative in particular, he walked into a Petco or a PetSmart and he started to lambast the cashiers there because they had Pride flags displayed at the cash registers. Uh, so he said, do you support this? And they said, yes, I support LGBTQ rights. And he responded by saying, oh, so you support pedophilia, basically conflating pedophilia with LGBTQ plus rights. That's effectively what Jerry Nadler is doing right here. She's saying, I do not support apartheid. And he's saying, oh, so you don't support Israel's right to exist. No, that's not what she's saying. She's condemning racism and oppression. But Jerry Nadler here is pretending as if that's not what she's saying. He continues here, I proudly embrace both of these political positions and identities, even as I have criticized some of the policies and actions of democratically elected Israeli governments over time. I would happily put my progressive record and credentials up against anyone's, okay? It is both wrong and self-defeating for progressive leaders to abide by such an offensive litmus tests. Okay, so that's funny that he's claiming that he's a progressive, more progressive than Rashida Tlaib, but he's saying that this is an absurd litmus test. Okay, well, it's only the most basic litmus test ever. It's not even like a progressive litmus test, in my opinion. It's just, are you or are you not a shitty person? Like, do you think that you can be progressive and still be racist? Do you think that you can support oppression and the dispossession of an entire group of people and still be progressive? 
If the answer is no to that, then the same thing follows here. How can you purport to be progressive while supporting, functionally anyways, despite your criticism, this system of apartheid, where Palestinians are not just treated as second-class citizens, they are brutalized and displaced from their homes. How can you purport with a straight face to be progressive and support this oppressive system? To be progressive is to object to the oppression of marginalized people, to support the liberation and self-determination of oppressed peoples everywhere. But you can make an exception for Israel? That doesn't make any sense to me. But he's not the only one because others decided to chime in and attack Rashida Tlaib by, of course, misrepresenting what she said, by attributing an argument to her that she very clearly did not make. Richie Torres, for example, tweeted out, there's nothing progressive about advocating for the end of Israel as a Jewish state. Yes, because she did that. Nothing progressive about opposing the Abraham Accords, which promotes peace. Nothing progressive about opposing the Iron Dome, which protects civilians from indiscriminate rocket fire. Right, and she did not speak to that. But what about the self-defense of Palestinians who are brutalized by Israeli forces? Do you support them being protected? Do you support an Iron Dome for them? You know, we often hear about Israel having the right to defend itself. Do Palestinians have a right to defend themselves at all? Well, no, of course not. Israel, their government is supposed to be able to brutalize, murder innocent civilians with impunity. And the second that you condemn their apartheid state, well, mm, you're saying that Israel doesn't have the right to exist. That doesn't even make sense. Like, I, I condemn the Saudi Arabia government and their genocide in Yemen. I condemn the United States' government and our wars over oil in states like, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. Does that mean that I don't think that the United States should not exist? Does it make you inherently Islamophobic to condemn the actions of the Saudi government? Of course it doesn't. But right here, they're playing loose with the facts because there's really no defense against what the apartheid government of Israel is doing. So they have to try to obscure the issue by pretending as if the criticisms that are being lobbed against Israel are simply coming from a place of anti-Semitism. And that's just not true. Now, Debbie Wasserman Schultz chimed in saying, the outrageous progressive litmus test on Israel by Rashida Tlaib is nothing short of anti-Semitic. Proud progressives do support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state, suggesting otherwise is shameful and dangerous. Divisive rhetoric does not lead to peace. Now, I just love that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, of all people, is claiming that somebody else within the Democratic Party is being divisive. Really, Debbie? Perhaps you're not the best messenger for this, okay? This is the individual who, in her capacity as DNC chair, sabotaged one of the candidates because she wanted her friend Hillary Clinton to win the 2016 Democratic Party primary so she could get a job at the White House. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Like, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is one of the most corrupt members of Congress, just period. And yet she's claiming, oh, no, no, you can't claim that we're not progressive if we don't condemn Israeli apartheid. You're not progressive, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Somebody who's progressive, first and foremost, they, of course, reject Israeli apartheid, but they also don't accept contributions from the payday industry. The fact that they're coming out and they're angry that she's claiming, Rashida Tlaib is claiming that you can't be progressive and support apartheid is just hilarious. They take it as like a personal offense. Oh, she's saying that I can't be progressive. Well, I'm incredibly progressive. No, you're not. Stop pretending. Like, I don't understand why you have to uphold this facade that you're progressive. You're not progressive. Who cares? Like, it's just the label. And it's just like anyone who 
purports to be progressive and supports human rights, you cannot support this system of oppression. That's not to say that you believe that Israel shouldn't exist, of course, but it's saying that this system of governance that they currently have, where they subject Palestinians to human rights abuses, that can't be tolerated. You have to end apartheid in order for liberty for Palestinians. Now, if you don't believe that Israel is an apartheid state, let me direct your attention to an Amnesty International report released on February 1st of this year, where they described Israel's apartheid against Palestinians as a cruel system of domination and a crime against humanity, with Amnesty Secretary General stating clearly, our report reveals the true extent of Israel's apartheid regime, whether they live in Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the rest of the West Bank, or Israel itself, Palestinians are treated as an inferior racial group and systematically deprived of their rights. We found that Israel's cruel policies of segregation, dispossession, and exclusion across all territories under its control clearly amount to apartheid. The international community has an obligation to act. Now, in their summary, they go on to explain how Palestinians as a people are treated as a threat by Israel's government with a sustained effort by the Israeli government to control their movement and decrease their presence in Israel. It described Israel's apartheid system as one of explicit systemic discrimination, which blocks Palestinians from leasing on 80% of Israel's land. Bedouin villages that are unrecognized by Israel are cut off from water and electricity. This affects nearly 70,000 people, not to mention how Palestinians are disproportionately left out when it comes to the allocation of state resources, with COVID aid being just one of the most recent examples. On top of that, Palestinians are displaced as the government seizes their homes and or demolishes them. Their freedom of movement is heavily restricted. I mean, there's a reason why Nelson Mandela's grandson called Israeli apartheid one of the worst foreign of apartheid ever, and he's following in the footsteps of his grandfather, Nelson Mandela, who called for Israel to withdraw from occupied Palestinian territory, noting how they were being oppressed by the Israeli government. So let's be very clear about this. What these bigoted Islamophobic Democrats like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Jerry Nadler, Richie Torres are trying to do is conflate any and all criticism, legitimate criticism, mind you, of the Israeli government with a hatred of the Jewish people, because that's the only thing that they have. You can actually argue with Rashida Tlaib on the merits because it's very clearly a system of apartheid and oppression and abuse. So what they do is they claim anti-Semitism. They're essentially weaponizing identity politics to silence critiques. And that's dangerous because it diminishes actual anti-Semitism, which is dangerous and must be opposed by everyone. But when you're taking money from pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian organizations, this is the only argument that you can make. You have to try to shut down criticism by any means necessary. So this is why you see them purposefully misrepresent Rashida Tlaib's argument by saying, oh, you're calling it apartheid? That means you don't want Israel to exist, when that's not what she's saying. If you actually were confident in your beliefs, you'd grapple with the substance, but they're not. They're just, they're just saying what they want to say or what they know they need to say to shut down criticism. Now, I think it's really important that we bring in Jewish voices here. So I want to leave you with the late, great Michael Brooks, who had the clearest, most perfect response to this issue here. Take a look. Are you not concerned about the binary between either condemning Israel entirely, um, being like also a stance that a lot of like very strong and notorious anti-Semitic people agree with versus like, you know, seeing this as more of a complex issue where it is wrong what's going on and that there's also a way to do this that Israel still exists and is supported? So, or is so it's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. 
it acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. And just as like a thought experiment, IDW people, if we know that if somehow a population of Jewish refugees ended up in West Bank in Gaza and an Arabic government in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv had an open air prison in, in what, you know, Jewish Gaza, which they bombed with white phosphorus, they killed civilians indiscriminately and they had no uh, provisions for medicine, they had an embargo that blocked food, that the electricity wasn't running, that there was an over 48% unemployment rate, life expectancy and malnutrition statistics were horrifying. The, uh, one of the major uh, policy makers in this hypothetical Arabic Palestinian state said, we need to put those Jews on a diet. In the West Bank, there was another Jewish area where there was a little bit more autonomy, but there was regular Arabic settlements where they pulled up the Jewish farmers' foods, they terrorized them with rocks, the security forces broke children's bones, and they couldn't drive their own roads. We'd all have no problem understanding what that was. So there's nothing complex about it. The second part of your question, it's, it's a pure asymmetry relationship, and the question is rights or not. So that's it, it's not complicated. The second part of your question, at this point, there's always been, there's always going to be crackpots who are anti-Semitic who condemn Israel. That's not what drives the movement, it's particularly in the United States. If you work around most people who are concerned with this issue, it's actually populated with a lot of Jewish people. The real question we have to ask is why is it that APAC is hosting an information minister for Slobodan Milosevic? Why is it that there's relationships between the Israeli government and far-right parties in Europe? Why is it that Benjamin Netanyahu's son is posting borderline alt-right memes? Why is it that Israel is an alt-right state, even though it is from the descendants of the victims of one of the greatest crimes in history? That's a serious question, and that's inseparable from the racism of the project, which goes back to the first part that we have to solve. But thank you. Shalom. <laughs>
changing a birth certificate to get a new ID can also present problems. 12 states require trans people to undergo a gender-affirming surgery before officials will revise a birth certificate. Four states don't allow any changing of birth certificate gender markers whatsoever. An estimated 414,000 eligible trans voters live in the 31 states that predominantly have in-person voting and require voter ID. Nearly half of trans voters in those states don't have an ID that accurately reflects their gender or name. Additionally, 64,800 eligible trans voters live in states that have very strict voter ID laws. So because of these voter ID laws, there are a lot of trans and non-binary people who may not be able to vote out the bigots who are trying to legislate them out of existence. Just think about that for a moment. And before you ask this question, no, this isn't some unintended consequence of these voter ID laws. The intended goal is voter suppression because Republican voters disproportionately are more likely to have a voter ID compared to Democratic Party voters. So the goal is to indirectly suppress the votes of Democrats, because what Republicans know is that if turnout is lower, if they could have less people turn out, then their chances of winning will increase. So it's despicable, but this is something that Americans have been dealing with in red states in particular for a very long time. As the ACLU explains, millions of Americans don't have government-issued photo identification, and getting one costs money, even if they're free. So, for example, if you need a birth certificate to get your free identification card, but you don't have your birth certificate, well, it costs money to obtain your birth certificate. And this has been proven as an effective way to reduce turnout, at least a little bit, disproportionately turnout of black voters. Now, generally, these laws do affect black voters in particular, who disproportionately do not have IDs, compared to their white counterparts. Now, an MIT study found that black Americans get questions about their IDs more than white voters. And in 2021, judges in North Carolina struck down a voter ID law saying that it was tainted with racial bias and used by Republicans as a way to remain in power. Now, they pitched this as a way to prevent fraud, and they don't necessarily want to make it more difficult to vote. But that is indeed the case. When they claim that these are needed, these laws are needed to prevent fraud, they're searching for a solution for a problem that doesn't exist. And they know that. They can see the statistics and see that widespread voter fraud is actually not a thing that's happening in the United States. If you see a case here and there, oftentimes it's usually Republicans who are committing voter fraud, but still, that small number is not sufficient to change the outcome of elections. So what you need to have a robust democracy is widespread participation. But what Republicans want to do is drive down turnout by suppressing the vote because that's how they know they'll stay in power because they can't compete on the substance. They know that their policies are unpopular. It's not just, you know, uh, th this issue of trans rights and whatnot. They know that when it comes to abortion rights, the minimum wage, a lot of economic issues, they just have unpopular views, tax cuts for the rich they don't actually sell. So they have two strategies to try to get around that, right? The first strategy is to keep everybody distracted with these culture war issues, woke politics, cancel culture. And the other thing that they do is try to suppress the vote with these voter ID laws, among other things. So this isn't necessarily surprising, but it's something that I want us to think about. Voter ID laws, they also affect trans people in a profound way. And lots of trans people may not be able to vote even if they're eligible because of these voter ID laws. So this isn't going to be surprising to anyone, but it gives us another reason to object to these voter ID laws. The only reason to have these is to stop more people from voting, period, full stop.
If you want news outlets like Status Quo, The Humanist Report, and Tim Black TV all in a single feed, this is for you. Opt Out is an app that puts investigative reporting and sharp commentary in one place for your convenience. No ads, no algorithms, no corporate talking points, no profit motive. Journalists, not big tech, made this app. So download the app today. Opt out of the corporate media, opt in to independent news you can trust. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.